it's like asking James Earl Jones to be one of the lollipop kids. I mean, you know, <laughs> it doesn't work, man. You're listening to Paleo Cheese Podcast, Episode 2, Paddleton and the ever-elusive platonic bromance. Hello, dear listener. I'm Chad Lutsky. And I'm Jeremiah Bannister. And you're listening to the Paleo Cheese Podcast, where we toss a film onto the Chase Lounge to discuss, psychoanalyze, and maybe even point and laugh at it. Mm-hmm. And today, we're talking about Paddleton, a Mark Duplass film. It's actually not going to be a lot of laughing, I don't think, in that. <laughs> no, no. Not, not, this is one of those not. where it's not a whole bunch of, like, poking fun and, and pointing fingers and going ha 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 you have cancer <laughs> certainly, not. certainly not but we should get some some laughing and and some uh just hanging out you know talking about uh what we're watching what we're reading maybe even what we're listening to uh so over the past week or two or whatever what, what have you been reading and or watching oh dude I love classical literature. I think I mentioned that in the last episode that I enjoy reading stuff about mythology and, and mm-hmm. things like that. But I, I have been reading the Arestia. It's this uh, three-part series, this trilogy by uh, Aeschylus. And by the way, I did not know how to pronounce that guy's name. <laughs> I, I think I was saying Ashilus or something. I forget. And, and I remember saying it before and thinking I sounded pretty dope, like I really knew what I was talking about. Oh, no, it's Aeschylus. Um, at least I'm hoping so. I hope I'm, I'm not saying it now. People go, oh, I'm actually, <laughs> sir. <laughs> you know? Yeah. Yeah. I went to the, I, I went to Miriam Webster, man. Says it on there. But no, the, the Arestia, it's got Agamemnon, the libation bearers, the Eumenides. And it's, it's, it's totally awesome. The whole thing is awesome. I, I, I love it. It's this uh, terrible, terrible tragedy, but it's translated by a guy named Robert Fagels. And, Fagels writes the intro called The Serpent and the Eagle. And man, I'll tell you, it is amazing. Like this guy, I, I went online trying to find more about this guy and saying, I want to read his stuff. Like I just, I want to read what he says because his analysis of it was, it was, it was gorgeous. The, the writing, the, the prose of it all was just absolutely uh, amazing. And so I've been reading that and absolutely loving it. I'll probably do a review sometime just on the book itself. But then also... I picked up this book, man, a while ago. We have some really cool used bookstores in Grand Rapids. And I don't know if I was at Redux or where I was, man, but there is a book there, The Complete Short Stories of Ernest Hemingway. And truth be told, man, I think, you know, I, I read little little tidbits here and there of Hemingway in school, but mm-hmm. then nothing after that. So to go back and say, well, you know, I want to go ahead and I'm going gonna to read a little bit and read Snows of Kilimanjaro for the first time in my life. Blew my mind, bro. Totally yeah. blew my mind. Oh, yeah. I mean, it was like laser blast level stuff. And so it was it was amazing. And then he, he wrote one. It's pretty dark called Up in Michigan. Mm-hmm. And uh, I even read an, an analysis of Up in Michigan that was it was amazing. And so I, I'm really grateful, in fact, not just to have, to be reading the books that I'm reading, but even to stumble on things that I wasn't familiar with. I have a bunch of Hemingway but I've only read The Old Man in the Sea. And it wasn't for school. We never read that for school, but I read it on my own. I don't know, maybe a decade ago. It was okay. I mean, it wasn't horrible, but it wasn't anything that I was like, oh man, you have to read this. Have you read that one? The Old no, Man in the Sea? Not yet. Okay. I plan I plan to read 
a significant number of them. And and I, I forget which one I read that I wasn't that impressed with. I mm-hmm. mean, he has a huge uh, array of different writings. And so e- even writers that I especially like, like Hillary Belloc, I, I really love Hillary Belloc as a writer. And yet there's things that, you know, he published that by comparison, it's kind of garbage, <laughs> I think, to use yeah. the French word for that. <laughs> and so it's uh, not very good. And so even with Hemingway, I can assume that there's a lot of that, although I'd be interested to read in the intro to this, they have him talking about his own work. And there are some of the some of the stories that he particularly liked. And he admits that some of the ones that he really liked were ones that did not have any critical acclaim that people mm-hmm. didn't care for it, bashed it. You know, it didn't get a lot of circulation, didn't make him a lot of money, but they were they were near and dear to his heart. So I want to read those, too. That's cool. I've, I've had this book by uh, Josh Mallerman for a while that I haven't uh, ever read yet. It's a it's a thin book um, published by uh, This Is Horror, which actually does a wonderful podcast. But they also um, I'm not sure how many books they publish, but this was one of them. And, and you can't get it anymore from them. It's out of print, at least through them. I'm only about a third of the way through, but it's really good. I, I, I like it a lot. Um, I don't know if I like it as much as Bird Box, but it's still really I mean, it's a, just a completely different story. And it's coming of age. A, a a girl and a boy are on a first date in a canoe where they go to a lake and then that lake goes into another lake that's not so crowded but then they find a third lake where they have to go through a tunnel and once they reach that it's kind of it, it, it's like a whole other you know unexplored world at least for them and while they're there they see a house in the water fully furnished down there and uh, they want to start exploring it. It's it's pretty endearing. It's also very claustrophobic. I'm not sure how scary it's going to get, but I, I, I'm really enjoying it. It's, it's really good. Another book that I'm reading is by an author named Ronald Kelly. He's just started writing again, I believe, maybe nine years ago, 11 years ago, something like that. But he had taken a, a hiatus. He was a, a fairly popular horror author in the uh, 90s. And I think he wrote um, he wrote a handful of stuff and, and some of it's hard to get. You can get it on eBay. But he actually uh, went on on hiatus. Um, I talked to him about this the other day, and I think I can speak about it publicly because I've read it on his Wikipedia page. But he went on a hiatus for a couple of reasons. But I thought it was interesting that one of the reasons why was because he had felt a religious conviction on what he was writing. So he quit for 10 years. That's wow. not that's that's not all of the reason, but that's one of the right, reasons. Right, right. And so we talked about it. Uh, and I, I've become, I guess, friends with with Ronald uh, over the past uh, year. He, he's read some of my stuff. And he uh, one of the reasons why I'm reading this the book isn't out yet. It's going to be published by uh, Silver Shamrock, I believe. And it's called The Essential Six Stuff. And it's a collection of short stories, some of which have already been published and some newer stuff. But he asked me for a blurb. I get asked that uh, quite often. I, I can't always do it. So I'm hoping to be able to give him a, a nice blurb that he can toss on the cover or whatever. So so far, I've, I think I've read two and a half, three stories. Yeah, he can write, man. Actually, disturbing stuff in there. And it's, um, yeah, I was, I, was uh, I, I wouldn't say shocked, but, 
you never know what you're going to get when you, when you read something, especially if it's a, a friend or an acquaintance and, and they're like, Hey, can you read this? And sometimes it's just not, uh, <laughs> it's not that great. <laughs> and so, but I'm, I am enjoying this. And I, I wasn't anticipating saying this, but you brought, you brought up the idea of friends asking about it. And I have a friend who asked me, he really likes my writing and he asked me if I would edit his book. And it's one of those fortunate situations because I anticipated that it would be a good read, but I was also relieved. Right? And there's always that, that kind of thing in the back of the mind that goes, dude, please tell me <laughs> this is going to yeah. be a good book. And so it, it is, it's, it's fortunately really good. It doesn't require a lot of my artistry to help him with that, you know, but I, I understand, man, I'm coming to appreciate what you, what you're talking about. You know, I'm not, mm -hmm. not quite at the Lutsky level. But I'm getting there, man. <laughs> I, I'm serious. When I grow up, dude, I want to be like that. <laughs> oh, the uh, I've been I've been watching movies too, and that's one thing. You know, I, I watched uh, you know, while I'm editing or whatever. You know, I'll have movies play in the background. I mean, not so much movies anymore because I try to write notes for those. But have uh, cartoons. You know, I mentioned I think last episode I was talking about Super Friends and Ren and Stimpy, but it's it's moved on now. Okay, now it's still there, right? The Super Friends is still there, of course, but the thing playing in the background now is x-men and i i'm a collector so i've collected a lot of comics man for a long time my parents for my birthday gave me a, a subscription to spider-man i had the the original carnage story so i had that i have a 30 year a 30 year anniversary edition with this hologram cover that's really cool for for spider-man but i was also into into x-men and i've got a lot of stuff with Wolverine. I liked artists like Sam Keith, who also is of the Max fame. But I've also watched a movie. I watched one called Snowpiercer. It's directed by Bong Joon-ho, the director. He also did Parasite, which is on my watch list. I want to see that movie. And he yeah, did The Host. Yeah, he did The Host, too. It's based on a graphic novel, a French graphic novel by Jacques Loeb and Jean-Marc Rocher. And it's it it has in there stars... Uh, Christopher Robert Evans, and I gotta, I gotta give it up to old Chris Evans because when you have any movie like this where you've got this star, somebody who's you know really made a name for himself, and and his face is on these blockbuster hits and stuff, it's really difficult to to kind of peel away from that because people will inevitably just see you as that character. Sure. So I was, I was really glad to see him in this character. And not constantly to be thinking of him in his highlight role in not another teen movie, but you know, like, <laughs> the, the idea. No, it's, it's a he's he's Captain America, and he was on Fantastic Four, and so the idea that I, I was able to to see beyond that, you know, to see beyond the popular roles that he's played over time, it really says something about him. I I think that he's an amazing actor. So it was a cool movie. Yeah. I I just watched um uh I've been watching. Kirby your enthusiasm and I've already seen all of them except for I think the last season and a half I think there's 10 seasons now yeah it's one of my favorite shows for sure and I mean watching it you can tell it's very Seinfeldish so you can tell Larry David was a big part in writing you know creating Seinfeld but um I love not only the show but I love the way that they uh film the show and write the show because which is ironic that I'm even bringing this up because it's it's because we're we're going to be talking about Paddleton mm -hmm. and which is a movie that is for the most part is uh, improvised. So 
like with Curb Your Enthusiasm, they have an outline and they have certain things that's like, okay, now here's like, you need to get pissed and tell me, you know, and get, get mad at me about this thing, you know, and they have a, they have a structure to it, obviously, because everything just like oftentimes in Seinfeld, everything kind of comes to a head at the end and, you know, things kind of like, um, intertwine and stuff, especially in, in Curb. There's a lot of like foreshadowing and you can tell that, okay, this is going to pop up at, at the end and Larry's going to get in so much trouble for this or whatever. But the dialogue is, is all improvised once in a while. They do have something that's important. That's it's a line that needs to be said for sure. And uh, I, I just find that fascinating. And, you know, we'll get into it a little bit later, but uh, Mark Duplass, who uh, has written several movies and starred in them. That's, his shtick that's what he does that's what he's most comfortable with is and so when he's directing a, a film or, or working on one that's what he wants his actors to do is to improvise their stuff so but we'll get we'll get into that when when um right I guess now could be right <laughs> yeah. now it's right now there's what's holding us back man i think we should do this let's do this Okay, so Paddleton, it's a, I, I guess you could call it a dramedy, but more heavy, heavier on the drama side than, than any kind of comedy. But there's definitely some uh, laugh out loud moments in there for sure. But the, the content is dark. It was written uh, by Mark Duplass and Alex Lehman. And Alex also directed Blue Jay, which was written and starred Mark Duplass. Kind of romantic, black and white, uh, very indie film. Paddleton is a, yeah, it's it's a dramedy and it, it stars Mark Duplass and Ray Romano, which if you've only seen him in, uh, what was the name of his Everybody show? Everybody Loves, Loves Raymond. Raymond. Yeah. If you've only seen him in, in that and tend to stay away from anything else you might be in, you're doing yourself a disservice. Uh, disservice. He was great in Parenthood. He was great in this film. I know he's in a new Martin Scorsese film, The Irishman. And yes, his voice does lend to um, being cursed with seemingly playing the same type of character, you know, just kind of like like that cartoon character Droopy. Remember that? that yeah, that, oh, of uh, course. Yeah. Yeah. He's kind of a, a downer. Well, it's inevitable. Yeah. It, it would be really tough for him to be the pizzazzy guy, you know? Yeah. It's like asking James Earl Jones to be one of the lollipop kids. I mean, you know, <laughs> it doesn't work, man. Yeah. You know, but this one was yours. Yeah, you know, I was, I was going to yeah. say that, that I, I saw it at the very beginning of the year. In January, I watched it and I was excited because I'm a huge Mark Duplass fan and his brother, Jay. They they work together all of the time. They're inseparable. Uh, I know a lot about these guys. I've seen many um, conferences, interviews, all kinds of stuff. Uh, I've read interviews, watched interviews. So I know a lot about uh, these guys and where they came from how they got where they are and their ideas on making films. And uh, it's very DIY. It's very punk rock. So I was excited about seeing this movie. I knew it was going to be right on my alley. I'm a huge fan of character driven, heavy dialogue driven uh, films. Mm -hmm. the, the, the type that some people would sit down with me and probably go, my gosh, this is so boring, but I just, I, I love them. Yeah. When I saw it, I knew I don't think that there's going to be a movie that's going to be able to top this one this year for me. And, 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 you know, the year just started, so we'll see. But when we started talking about the doing the podcast, 
it, yeah, it was one of the yeah. first ones. You were insistent. I said, yeah. yeah, I was. Yeah. But then you you thought about something. You know, you were so excited about it because of the experience you had that mm-hmm. it kind of didn't process all the way. And you you were really generous. And I, I this is you're my friend, man. Right? We're not just yeah. doing this as you know two guys coming together. We're friends. We go back a long yeah. way. And you you said. I got to tell you, you know, this has to do with somebody who's got cancer because my daughter died. My firstborn, Samantha, she died of brain cancer. And so it's been almost three years since she died. But I told you, I said, look, it's been it's been long enough. And these are things that these are stories that that really resonate with me. Obviously, I anticipated crying and I did. Mm -hmm. Um, And I may even tear up a little bit talking about it. So I know that listeners will forgive me on that. But kind of put my the cards on the table here right maybe even a little early but just to say that at the end i was so glad that i watched this yeah. you know it's yeah man it's like it's like a monster calls you know i am so mm-hmm. glad that was another really painful one to watch but it was one of those where it was painful um but at the same time it's like man dude i i am so happy that i went through that and so Interestingly enough, maybe even kind of plays into the theme of the movie. <laughs> for, yeah. for those which, for those who don't know, um, without giving any spoiler, without giving any spoilers, because a lot of people haven't seen it yet. It hasn't been out that long. Um, mm-hmm. Battleton is a uh, the relationship between the two characters, Michael and, and, and Andy, Ray Romano and Mark Duplass. And they have kind of a, uh, a very platonic bromance where they're um, middle-aged guys who really kind of find that they need each other. And one of them has been diagnosed with cancer mm-hmm. and he's not going to make it that much has been told to him. So he decides that he's going to um, go on a road trip with his buddy to go get this drug that you can uh, uh, take to basically euthanize yourself so that yeah. you don't have to go through all of the ugliness that can be involved with having something like that. So that's pretty much what the movie is about. We talked about Wild at Heart in the last episode, and that movie began with a bang, right? <laughs> a mm-hmm. lot of them. And so right from the get-go, you're you're right into it. And it's the same with this. Right from the get-go, they are in a doctor's office, and they are being told that he has cancer. Well, he's not told necessarily he has cancer. He's told that there are growths. But this really, really concerns Andy, the character played by Romano. That yeah. it's it's extremely concerning to him. And it says a lot. I think the character development actually happens pretty quickly in this Very. film. But yeah, right right away. You get to know so much about their relationship and both of their temperaments and the way that they're dealing with this. You you get mm-hmm. so much of it very quickly. And you get him in mm-hmm. weird yeah, right in the beginning that Ray really cares about Mark's character. Yeah. You know, that and they really you know, he wants to know exactly what's going on, what the options are and how can, can he live through this? And, you know, tell me now. And um, there's not the even a diagnosis. Guy, yeah. And the guy yeah, who's yeah. dying, he's just like, you know, chill. It's it's going to be cool. And the other guy's like, no. So, yeah, right away. It does a great job of uh, very soon establishing who's who, you know, and, and what kind of role they're playing, like in their relationship. And that the idea of uncertainty and how both of them are in the face of that. Not entirely, because it kind of, some things change over time, right? Like, yeah. just like people. Mm-hmm. And, but in the beginning, as it stands, you got Ray Romano. I mean, he's just freaking out. And he's trying mm-hmm. any way that he can to figure out with this nurse, right? <laughs> or this doctor to say, like, if I, if I frame it as a question, 
or I, yeah. as an answer, like he's doing this kind of jeopardy thing with her. Yeah. And, you know, maybe you can answer me. And she's confused by it. And Michael, Mark Duplass's character, sitting there just kind of like, he's just taking it in stride, though. Like he knows that this is all about brotherly love. This is all about his best friend really being concerned for him and afraid for this predicament. But it, I thought that was really cool. And a big, a lot of props, man, to both of them and to the writers on that for the the ability to develop those characters so quickly in a really powerful way, too. Going back to <clears throat> what I was talking about with the improvising of, of everything, I watched a lot of uh, interviews with Romano and Duplass specifically about, you know, this movie. And um, Ray, I don't believe, had ever worked like this before, like uh, off the cuff, you know, just... Uh, the dialogue just he he would go home and you know think of jokes to say because there are several jokes especially from his character several mm -hmm. funny scenes um but it's very dry humor too you know and uh he uh you know would come up with that the night before whatever and then show up to film the particular scene and, and he would you know spout off or whatever it was uh, challenging for him. And he's also stated that it's probably the, the most fun he's ever had filming a movie ever. It, it was, it was cool to, to hear the story about how Mark had gotten him to, to do this and how he thought he would be perfect for it. But what I found most interesting was Mark's idea of the world, not having enough movies like this, where they explore not necessarily like ta a taboo platonic male, male relationship, not being that it's taboo, but that there just isn't enough of them. You know, men who have a relationship like that tend to, you know, live in I, monasteries. <laughs> well, they, they kind of like yeah, uh, I mean, it, their love is unspoken, kind of, you know, like these guys, you know, they loved each other. It was very clear because they were spending all of their time with each every other. Every day. You know, yeah. They didn't have yeah. wives or girlfriends or, or, or any like family coming around or anything. And so they were the best of friends. And um, Duplass wanted to really explore that because he, you know, there isn't enough movies out there like that. And I, I, I like those kind of movies because it's something that um, I mean, I personally and, and I know you are, too. We kind of wear that on our sleeve. I have no problem, you know, saying to a, a guy, hey, I love you. I mean, we do it yeah. all the time. Right. Yeah. And or, or hugging or anything like that. I, I'm completely comfortable with that. Some people aren't. You know, and yeah, I just like the idea of him exploring that and doing it very, I don't know, tastefully and memorable and uh, in, in a very profound manner. There's a, a review over at Mashable, Allison Foreman, and it's called Netflix's Paddleton shows how desperately we need the words to describe our more than friendships. And there's a quote that's really mm -hmm. applicable here. Um said, I can't say a suitable term for this relationship comes easily to mind, but I've never seen a better example of it on screen. So for now, and in spite of it truly being a terrible title, I guess we'll just have to call it and them a Paddleton. After yeah. all, we have to call them something. And I, you know, I disagree cool. with the idea that that's a terrible name for a movie. I think it's a cool name for a movie. But the, the thrust of what she's saying is mm -hmm. is totally true that we we live in a society where it's easy to envision and to describe and to talk about uh, relationships that are men and women or even with uh, women and women or men and men, but not where 
it's like this, right? Uh, you know, normally it'd be, well, it's, it's bros getting together and they go to their, you know, go back home to their wives yeah. or whatever. But these guys are alone and mm. they live in apartments one above the other. And in fact, it's the kind of friendships that the, and I liked how in the movie that they brought this up, um, was that people will perceive them as gay, but that mm -hmm. they're not. And in fact, that they kind of look at the whole thing like in a very almost naive way that it wouldn't, why would it even appear that way? Like, no, like the idea that that even looks this way at all. Mm -hmm. And I think it takes a real weirdo to try to argue that it's a repressed thing in this movie. I think that mm -hmm. that would take a real stretch. I think that this is uh, a matter that is genuine, just true friendship this is the way that they live and that they like weird things they like watching kung fu movies right and 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 not just that they like doing weird things but the the weird things every day yeah. to go to their job and when they get home to watch some crazy old kung fu movie right and to eat some pizza together and to play some games like puzzles and stuff that these mm -hmm. are that's their their routine and to play paddleton this game you know, and by the way, we should we should just describe this game because there is no other instance of this that I know of. And I don't know if they based it off of like a real thing that the writers did when they were kids or or what. But it's kind of a cool it seems like Probably. it would actually be kind of a fun game, actually. Yeah, something that they made up. And before I forget, when I saw this movie and I posted on Facebook that I had watched it, I believe my status said something like um, just watched Paddleton and it tore me up or something like that and uh there were quite a few people who were confused at why the movie about the teddy bear would have me crying so hard <laughs> <laughs> i had to uh explain that uh no man it's not paddington yeah it's paddleton <laughs> exactly yeah. the idea is it's this game where and they they play it uh they go to this very old and abandoned drive-in movie theater and it's the valley drive-in and I think that I think that they chose that word valley and it's in huge words. Right. I mean, huge letters. Um, mm -hmm. I think that it's it's playing on the idea. And this is my personal take that it's about the uh, the shadow of death. You know, e even even New York Times had a, a review of this, the, of the movie that was shrugging at the shadow of death. And, and so I'm not the only person who kind of got the idea that they're playing this game in the Valley of Death, right? But they, they have these tennis rackets and they have this pink ball and they're, the goal is, it seems like it's a collective effort that they're not against each other at all. And the idea is to try to get it to bounce off of the wall and then onto the ground and then bounce into one of those burning big, barrel. a burning barrel. Mm -hmm. And when, when it happens, they're pumped. I mean, they're jumping around and it's, they're ecstatic. Yeah. So people would be kind of weirded out that it's not even seemingly competitive. Right. Yeah. You know, I guess the competition is the, the barrel, <laughs> you know, yeah. that that's the bad guy, you know, and, and they have a particular movie, man, that they know like by heart. The director who co-wrote it with Duplass, he was begging Mark to, let him film a fake kung fu movie that doesn't exist and marco's like uh yeah you know i don't think you're gonna be able to pull it off it's you know it's really got to be authentic he's like well just let me try and the dude did it and uh 
I, w- I was I was convinced that was a legitimate kung fu movie. And I thought not, it was a real one. I'm learning this for the first no. time right now. The director, yeah, the director made that and then they used it. That's amazing. Yeah, it has that vintage feel. Mm-hmm. You got to wonder what kind of cameras they use. Like, I would love to talk to them and ask, like, what kind of cameras were you using to produce that effect? And some of it could have been uh, done in. I mean, I'm sure cameras had uh, to do with it, but also you know, post-production with the, you know, graininess and things like that. And of course they had the bad dubs in it, but just because you take bad, you know, you put bad dubs doesn't mean it's going to look authentic. Right. This legitimately did look really, I think that when me and my wife were watching it, I think I even made a remark that that's a legit movie. You know, that's a real Kung Fu movie. And I was totally wrong. And it, but that's the life they live. And it's, and so to have cancer thrown into that, really messes things up and it's really tough because on the one hand you know andy really struggles to keep living as if everything is normal but yet michael wants to live as normal as possible because he loves life and he loves his friend you know it's bad enough that he's got cancer but it'd be even worse if he just couldn't enjoy himself and to enjoy the things that may not be the greatest things in the world. Like there's a really cool scene where they're watching the movie and they're cooking this pizza. And for whatever reason, it ends up being on too long and it's burnt. And Andy Romano's character is totally not cool with this. He's freaking out. He's really upset, insisting that, that we, we can't eat that. We can't do that. And Duplass's character, Michael, totally thinks that it's fine. And he keeps insisting it's okay. Mm-hmm. It's all right. And it, it, it's not bad. And the way that they're they're going about this, that one is willing to just accept the one with cancer, okay? Because it ends up being diagnosed. I mean, it's cancer, right? And it's mm-hmm. it's not just cancer. It is inoperable. And there's, there's no tests. There's no anything. There's some meds that they can take, but it's not to be curative. There's nothing like that. So you're just from the, from the beginning, you're accepting the fate of this. You know that that is the end of the tunnel for this mm-hmm. and and yet here he is looking at at burnt pizza and he's okay with it and he's the one with cancer mm-hmm. and th- that kind of stuff happens man for real <laughs> like mm-hmm. yeah. you know and that happened that happens numerous times where he, you know romano is trying to make it totally perfect he's trying to make sure that everything's taken care of and it's a control matter mm-hmm. you know that that he's in he wants to be in control which i th- is symbolic in the idea that later on he purchases a safe which I love that. It was very endearing. I love the fact that it was a toy. You know, yes. it was a like a pink uh, girl's toy that <laughs> yeah. he just picked up from the, uh, yeah. you know, local store or pharmacy or whatever to, to use. I, I really like that a lot. And I like the idea that there were legitimate fights over over this. And this is why it's more nuanced, right? And this I like the nuance of these characters because Andy, Romano's character, is freakish about control from the very beginning. He's the one who wants to know the answers. He wants to, any way he can possibly get it. Everything needs to be just right all the time. And Michael is the one that is accepting the way that things are. But when it comes to the medicine, when it comes to the medicine, just to have it near him, he has to have that. And Andy buys that toy safe and buys it from, from pays a, a pharmacist that that was actually a pretty endearing scene where when the pharmacist is giving Michael the medicine, he's very, very uncomfortable describing how to take this medicine, right? Yeah. Because you're dying. It's going to kill you. 
And so he's very uncomfortable. It's very unsettling. You can tell he's uneasy about the whole thing. But yes. but when they have this this safe, all of a sudden, Michael is in desperate need of control too. You know, and they get in this fight over the safe, yeah. and they're yelling at each other, running around this this uh, this table. Yeah, and they're running around, and and he says, you know, well, why do you need it? You know, Andy says, why do you need it? And he says, because it's mine. I bought these meds. It's mine. And he says, well, but yeah, but why do you need it? And he says, because I'm the dying guy. Yeah. And he keeps repeating it over and over. And then eventually he snaps because he's hearing it over and over. I'm the dying guy. I'm the dying guy. And he snaps and he goes, and I'm the other guy. Yeah. That and was that's, heavy. that's the heart of both. Yeah, it was it was heavy. And, and, you know, yeah, I'm the other guy. I am the one who's going to be um, left behind. I'm going to be alone because you're all, you know, you're all I have. Yeah. There's a truth to that, you know, and and. The idea that on the one hand, you know, we all know people who've died and everybody listening knows somebody who's died and maybe even somebody close to them. But, you know, on the one hand, yes, it is super painful that they're dying. It is worse than than not dying, obviously. And you are in the better place. At the same time, you are going to continue on. And that's tough. Yeah, that's a hard deal. In fact, that was it was one of the most haunting things of my whole life was that very question. How do you continue to survive? And I remember when I asked it, it was, I have a good friend and her son committed suicide years ago. They came home and found him. He had a rosary and a Bible out and he was dead on the ground. Took a lot of meds, quite obviously regret in his mind and in his heart. And it was extremely painful. And I was at the funeral in this church, this Catholic church, we're Catholic. And I remember the, the casket coming in and they open up the doors. I'm in the narthex in the back and they open up these, these double doors and they swing wide open. And right there, man, you can see way off in the distance, you can see the altar and you can see the priest wearing his, his black and his violet. Um, and then there is, then there's the mom. And the mom, little Italian lady, man, black dress, black veil. And she, her eyes just light up and she's standing in the aisle, right? And she comes running toward the casket as fast as she can. And she jumps on it and she cries out, my boy, my boy, my beautiful boy. And dude, it was so gut-wrenching to watch this. I was bawling my brains out. And I thought to myself, how do you continue on as a parent? Like, and I said, I couldn't even imagine what that'd be like it was the, it was the, the worst nightmare in the world right but then it happened and i had to deal with that too mm-hmm. and so it is a, a terrible truth that everything inside of you is programmed in such a way for survival at almost any and all cost and with with, with rare exception and normally under extreme duress where people take their own lives but in general you don't want to die and I remember thinking with this movie, you know, how hard it would be for Romano's character, because unlike me and unlike people I know, Romano didn't have anybody else. Mm-hmm. Spoiler alert here. So if anybody wants to you know, fast forward a little bit, but um, it's hard not to talk about the end of this movie. I mean, the, the, that's not just the best part that the, the whole thing is good. It's just the, the whole ride getting there. But that drive that, that you're talking about, really hits Duplass's character and he changes 
you know, like you were mentioning, he changes from being, you know, this is going to be all right. It is what it is. This is just, you got to deal with it to being absolutely terrified. That's the part that got me the most to see him being broken like that. Uh, just destroyed me, man. It was probably the second most like kind of moving thing that I'd ever seen. The first being the season finale of six feet under, but I wasn't expecting that, man. I really, uh, it just really took me by surprise and just the realism of the movie anyway, where it's almost like watching some kind of really well-made found footage film, you know, just yeah. because there, everything was just so organic and natural and real. And so when that happened, it felt like such a real reaction. Yeah. It just felt very genuine. So much of it, man. So much of it. In fact, my wife, she was able to watch a monster call. She, in fact, she liked that. But she, we also cried like six times in the movie. Right? Mm-hmm. It's one of those things where it's like, well, we're in it together, sweetheart. It's, it's the way it is. But but this movie, um, I remember she got through maybe five minutes, that opening scene talking about cancer. And mm-hmm. she got up and went and was uh, washing dishes. Right? She never does that. Just never. And so I knew I wasn't going to press it at all. That would be absurd for me to do. But we talked about it the next day and she was saying that one of the things that she didn't like about it and what I, what I would dare to say was the difference between that and watching a movie like A Monster Calls is that it's quite obvious that A Monster Calls, you know, you got this huge monster, right? There's a, yeah. a huge tree monster. The yew tree grows into this big thing, you know, Liam Neeson's voice, you know, so it's amazing sounding. Uh, he's a he's a sexy monster. And so <laughs> you don't get that very often. And so um, this was not that. In fact, the way Chad describes it is great, where it's so real that you're watching it and the way that the, the, the filming was done, the way that the characters talk and act and everything's kind of played out, it, it feels real. Like you're watching, you're, you're peeking into somebody's life. And it was that suspended disbelief, you know, because we, we know we're watching Ray Romano, mm-hmm. right? We know that. Uh, we know we're watching Mark Duplass and yet at the same time for that time, man, we don't like it was, it was that suspended disbelief where you're really into it because it feels so organic and true to life, what you're experiencing. And even like, there were so many things in the buildup. They have this pretty interesting scene, which uh, critics have complained about. And I think is essential, but I I won't talk too much about here, I guess, but is, is where they're at a bar they're drinking together and they're telling the story of death punch together. Right. And it's a pretty powerful moment. It kind of really tells you a lot about them together and what they are without each other too. Afterward, they go into this hot tub and they take off their swim trunks. They're naked in this hot tub and they're sitting there kind of thinking they're being a little rebellious, a little bit tipsy. A woman comes and she's the, the one that owns the place. She manages the, the hotel and she sits in there and she's talking to them come to find out her husband had died and there was a, she used a phrase that her husband is here. Um, and they said, Oh, he's, he's, he's here. And she said, yeah, he's everywhere. And they said, Oh, like, what do you mean by everywhere? And she goes, well, he died. And it's kind of matter of factly, but you can tell, in fact, I, I wish I knew that woman's name because I felt like she did an amazing job. Yeah, acting. Very- I, she was amazing actually. But then Duplass's character leaves and he gets up and she tells Romano's character, you stay right. And she goes up to to talk to him and she's kind of flirting with them and taking off of his glasses and trying to get kind of sexy with them. Even looks into the, the hot tub and says, well, that's cute kind of thing. <laughs> and it's the only real sexual 
thing in the whole film. All right. That's the other thing about it. It's a very clean film in that regard. And so she kind of gets up on him and he says, what about your husband? And she goes, well, he's always with me, but he's also gone. Mm-hmm. And Romano in that moment, he pulls down his, his hat. He's wearing yeah. one of those knitted caps and he pulls it over his eyes and he turns his face very slowly away from her. Mm-hmm. And dude, I, I cried with him because yeah. I sat there and I said that that's tragedy. Because what she said is so true, and that's the heart of the pain for him, is that his friend will always be with him, and those memories will always be with him. But the truth is, is that his friend will also be gone. Yeah. And and you could you could hear the the reservation to that truth come out of her in a very heartfelt way. That on the one hand, it was obvious that she loves her husband still. And that she misses him profoundly. Mm-hmm. But at the same time that she is moving on in life and even caving to appetites, right? Mm-hmm. And her needs as a woman because he is gone. I got to say this, man, because it's something that I, again, I was like, I, that in that it was a sequence there where I cried a couple times real quick in a row because there was one scene where. He goes back and he's looking at his buddy drunk is right after that scene. He creeps back into the room and he looks over and he sees his buddy on the bed and he can't hear him breathing. And his face looks, you know, his jaws dropped open. He's kind of looking a little bit dead, a little, not looking too hot. And he's saying, Michael, Michael, Michael. And he's saying it over and over and over. And man, my heart started pounding. And, and he goes over and he's shaking him kind of thing. And, and Michael gets up, you know, and hey, whoa, what's going on? You know, he's just he's super duper drunk. And I thought about that. And I said, I had an experience like that with my daughter, man, at a camp. And we're there. And I, she was super tired. It was, it was about a week and a half before she died. And I go into this cabin because she was super tired. She had brain cancer. So she's super exhausted. And she was sleeping a lot at that time, like maybe 20 hours a day. And I go out, man, and it's dark out there. And so I, I I curl up, I get on her bed, and I said, hey, Samantha. And she doesn't answer. I, dude, I did it over and over and over, and I'm getting scared, man. And my heart was racing, and I grabbed her. And I'm not going to lie, man. I smacked her. I, I really, I'm not, I'm not even lying. Don't even take this out. This is for real. <laughs> this is, I said this at the funeral, man. I, I, I smacked her in the face because I was scared that she was in a coma. I didn't know mm-hmm. what to do. And I didn't smack her hard. I mean, it wasn't like crazy. It wasn't WWE stuff or anything, but I'm trying to get her attention. And all of a sudden, and it's all dark. There's no light in the whole room. And all of a sudden I heard, Papa, what do you want? Kind of thing. <laughs> and it was like, there's no sense. I cannot even begin to tell you the amount of relief that that yeah. was for me. And and so when Michael spoke and he kind of, you know, all drunk and stupefied starts starts talking I was like, oh man, (laughs) I'm glad you're still here, buddy. (laughs) Like you're, uh, it it was, but it it was, it was so relatable though. Yeah, I'll bet. And and we had uh, talked a little bit before about seeing this movie so differently. I mean, I'm, I I consider myself a hyper empath, but it doesn't really matter. I I can't uh, relate to it on the level that you can. As a matter of fact, in, you know, the, the, uh, when I had warned you about what it's about, I had also mentioned, but don't just so you know, it's not a movie about suffering. You, there's no bedside suffering here, mm-hmm. but 
because that is my experience. I mean, I've had family members die from cancer, but I was younger and that, that, that suffering was kind of hidden from me. That was something that my, my parents had to go through where I knew what was happening, but I wasn't bedside, you know, with like uh, grandmas and grandpas and stuff. I never had anybody close to me uh, really, truly uh, going through that. So I guess when I was, you know, saying, don't worry, this, you know, it doesn't have that bedside suffering in it. That's coming from a person who that's the picture I have in my head that that struggle because um, so when you, when the thing, the scenes that made you cry, I would have never been able to say, you know, but there is this scene where, because I, I can't relate. I, I don't, right, right. I don't know what was going to hit you on, on, a, on a very personal level. All of it. I mean, it, it, yeah, I could go, I, I could go on. Well, it's amazing. I mean, that's why, I mean, this is serious props to, to the writers. I mean, I, I can't even begin to tell you and to the actors because um, even down to the little things like the hatred for small talk. And mm-hmm. when you go through something like that, man, you start to you start to kind of hate small talk. You know, yeah. the idea of people coming up and saying and they don't mean it. They don't mean it badly, but they'll say things like, well, how are you doing today? Because that's so customary. And you have to you have to in, internalize this and, and be gentle with people to say, man, this person's not meaning to be a douche clown. <laughs> right? yeah, you got right. You got to be cool. I have a perfect example of being on the end of offering that small talk because I don't know what to say, you know, five uh, weeks ago. Well, at the end of last year, my dad uh, had some issues where he had to go to the hospital and his esophagus is, is messed up and he ended up having to have all the surgery and stuff. And he almost died. And, um, he spent quite a bit of time in the hospital. And then uh, five weeks ago, he, he, he had been out for a while, for, you know, three or four months. And he started having some issues again, said he wasn't feeling well. So my brother lives near my dad. My brother went over there and, and uh, took him to the hospital. My, my dad, while he was there and they're trying to figure out what's going on, my dad starts puking up blood, like a lot of blood. Mm. And it's everywhere. And they come to find out he's internally bleeding and they can't find it and they can't stop it. And they're trying to do it. They can't reach it. They can't. There's so much clotting going on in him anyway that they don't, they can't find where it's coming from. So they transfer him to another hospital and then eventually another hospital. So, which he didn't even, he wasn't aware of because at a certain point he went to uh, a comatose state mm-hmm. and, and he was on a ventilator for like two and a half weeks. They don't want you on a ventilator for more than two weeks. There's uh, he he ended up having multiple strokes, major strokes while he was out. They made it very clear there's zero chance for recovery, and uh, he can't breathe on his own. Everything. And my dad had uh, has always made it very clear that he doesn't want to live like that. Mm-hmm. So you pull the plug. You know, I'm, I don't want to be in an nursing home. My dad's been very independent his whole life, and so that was the decision that we had to make was to pull the plug. And on the morning that that was to be done, his eyes were open and he was moving a little bit like his, his arms. And this is a this is actually a really short version because of five weeks of this of he's doing better today. His levels are looking good. And then the next day it's like, well, he had a stroke and then yeah. it's like well, wow. he's had strokes. 
And wow. then uh, something looks good. So it was just this head game. So mm-hmm. that morning when he was supposed to be unplugged, you know, and to see him like that all of a sudden, it was the strangest feeling of, of like not being really happy about it because ultimately we, we, we all, my, my sister and brother and I all felt like this is making this go on longer. Mm-hmm. This is going to end because he doesn't want to be in a, you know, hooked up to machines. And here was kind of our, our chance to end his suffering. And now he, he, we're going to have days of him being okay. And then, running more tests and then he ultimately he's just going to die so it was hard to celebrate the fact that we didn't have to do that and and we weren't sure i I can't even explain to you yeah it was just like it it was a feeling of relief but also a strange feeling of anger because of the roller coaster that we had been on um thinking that today is the day that we're going to see relief but ultimately still praying for a miracle right Uh, well anyway he he walked out of there like two days ago and he's at home now, but you know, and we were told that wouldn't, that wouldn't just not happen. But the reason why I brought that up is because uh, the last time I talked to him before he was, you know, in, in this comatose state for, uh, you know, uh, two or three, two and a half, three weeks, I said, Hey dad, how you doing? <laughs> right. You know? Yeah. And he's like, I, I'm, and this is, I think this is, I, I think this may have been right before he started peeking up blood and things got really serious. And he sounded like crap. He could barely talk. He's like, I feel like crap. And yeah. I just said, oh, well, I'm, I'm really, really sorry that you're there again. I felt horrible that he was yeah, there. Of course. Again. But just the idea that I would call and say, how, how are you doing? doing? <laughs> it's, so, it's so customary. It is. It, and that is actually the worst part for me in my, in my own personal experience, right. Is Mm -hmm. simply wanting that pain to go away and seeing it and hating it so much. And that's something that's a difference about a monster calls and this, and I don't, I'm sorry for bringing up so much about a monster calls, but they are similar in, in theme. And, you know, there was in, in monster calls, uh, that played a part in that, that, the, the hardship of having to watch that. And in this, this wasn't there because in this, it was euthanasia. Mm-hmm. The struggle was quick, and it. Yeah. I, I I wouldn't say it was entirely painless. I you know the the scene, and I won't I won't describe it. I think people need to see it, mm-hmm. and I don't want to describe it in any way, um, other than to say that it was remarkable again, in the realism yeah. of how certain things happen at the end of life, mm-hmm. and how someone lives through this and. But even with the idea of wishing somebody well, when when they're going through such terrible things, and that plays a role in this film where Andy, and I, I should just stop saying, I mean, it's toward, I know it's toward the end of the show. I'm just going to say Romano's character, Andy, but Andy, okay? Mm-hmm. Andy, he, he says things like, um, uh, never give up. You know, that, that was actually my daughter's motto. Never give up, keep on smiling. Mm-hmm. Okay, that was her motto. For them, he, he insisted, never give up. And he brought up, the idea of miracles. And this is something a lot of people did too about miracles. And he said, you know, miracles happen. And he brought up uh, Jim Abbott. And I don't know if people remember this guy, man, but Jim Abbott uh, played for university of Michigan. One, our one handed baseball player. He'd put his uh, glove on the nub on his other hand and he would pitch. And then he tossed that glove to his dominant hand, grab it in case the ball came at him and he had to catch it with that hand. I mean, wow. the guy, the guy was amazing. 
through a no hitter. Okay. Wow. In the film, they talk about a no hitter from the Yankees. He played, he played ball from, uh, he played in college. He played for university of Michigan. And so, you know, that's where we're from Michigan. It's kind of a cool thing. And so he's a Wolverine and I have, I have his baseball card. I may even have a baseball card of him where he was playing for Michigan back in the day, but he, he brings this up, you know, about, well, you, you can live that way. And, and the thing about that though, there's two, two things, man, is, is one, you know, cancer doesn't really give a crap who you are, <laughs> like what religion you are, what your belief system is. Like you're going to, people deal with it from all across the spectrum and miracles are few and far between. But then he says something else too. And this is so, this is so cool. He, he's throughout the whole movie. There's this idea and it's kind of a charming thing, but he says that he's got a, the best coach speech that's ever been done. Yeah. Ever. Right. Which is hilarious. I mean, it's so random if you think about it, you know, like, Hey man, I've got this speech for coaches, you know, like for football coaches or basketball yeah. coaches or whatever. And it's the best one that's ever been written. He says it's the best, right? So it's not even just like, okay, it is the best one. And the coaches would pay money for it. <laughs> and, and so it goes in and I don't want to, I don't want to say too much about it other than this is that it was really cool because to me, it is kind of the arc of the whole film in a way is what he says when he talks about, he says, picture something. We're going to lose this game, but so what? It's all going to be okay. You're going to have great lives, but you got to think one day. And he goes and he talks about these great lives, by the way. And he says, he's pretending that there are people like Johnny, you know, he's like, and you, Johnny, you're going to go to a, a local college and you're one day you might, you might own a boat. And another one, he said, you know, you, you, you could make eighty thousand dollars. It wasn't. It wasn't like, you know, that they're going to make a million bucks or they're going to, you it's know. Realistic, like, yeah. yeah, it's realistic. I mean, it, yeah. And it was saying, but he was saying you're going to live live great lives. And he says, but you got to think one day that you're going to wish that you could come back and you could replay that second half of the game that you lost. And he says, well, guess what? You're there right now. And I thought, yes, that's the film. Mm-hmm that's the film for the whole, for all of us, in my opinion, is like every single one of us will breathe a last breath one day and we will all leave in our wake people who will be hurt at our absence. And we have to think not only as the ones who will die, but the ones who are surrounded by people that we love and that we hate that, that those people too shall die. And that we ought to think for ourselves and think one day we'll be at that place, the deathbed, right? Mm-hmm. And and if we are thinking in our mind and saying not only that we're happy uh, with who's around us and where we found ourselves in the end, but if that we had to go back and go to that mid midpoint, you know, in any of these situations that we found ourselves in at any point in our lives with our friendships and even with our enemies, and we found ourselves back in that place that we would say, you know what, we gave it everything we had. Mm-hmm. in such a way that there's no regret that that we're there when we were there in the moment we played the best we could and if we went back we wouldn't do it any different no matter how hard it is no matter how painful it is and i thought what a powerful statement but it's also a statement of resigning to the the thing that says i have to keep going and i i've got to do my best to to deal with what i deal with in my life right now mm-hmm. in such a way that that i'll be proud of this because Honestly, I'm going to lose. And so will you, the viewer. And that was so powerful to me. 
That's good, man. That's a, that's a good note to end on. What overall, what, you know, what kind of rating are you going to give this? What we were, I mean, we've talked so much about it. I think I understand your overall feelings, but as far as like a, a star rating. I remember when I first watched it, I told you that I couldn't quite give it a five mm-hmm. out of five. And I said the reason why was because of the ending. Mm-hmm. And I won't I won't tell people what that ending is. Um, the ending ending. The ending ending. Because of course there's the ending of you know that you know that there's medicine, you know there's euthanasia. And we and I'm glad we didn't even go into a lot of detail about exactly how that all played out and stuff. Um yeah. more about what led up to it. But I give this bugger five straight up. All the way, five people need to watch it, but don't. This is like it's like the Passion of the Christ, man. You don't want to get a pizza party for this thing, you know. Like, hey, everybody, we're we got waffle cones and the Passion of the Christ today. Like, hey, you know, hey, man, watch that with your family or something, you know, or your church. With this, this is really something that is is something people should kind of experience alone or with small groups or with their loved ones or whatever. That this is not a party movie. I, I, a disclaimer too. This episode ha, has been a really heavy episode, and it's because of the movie. And we're not going to be digging, you know, looking for the uh, you know saddest thing that we can find or anything. But it was, it's such an important film yeah. that yeah. you know, and it, it, it's not something that even though there are laugh out loud moments, like I was like I said earlier, you kind of forget about them after mm-hmm. a while. But, you know, don't be afraid to tune in and think that all of a sudden you're going to be just, oh, man, that was too heavy. I'm not looking. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. We've, we've got a, yeah. a lot of movies that we're going to. And I, I can't think of another movie right offhand that we're that interested in that in, in viewing and reviewing and discussing that takes on quite the tone that this movie does. So, you know, I gave Wild at Heart five stars. And. It, this is an easy five stars for me mm-hmm. and I don't normally do that. Give like things like five stars. Uh, so I don't want it to sound like, you know, I just hand them out and it's, I'm always going to be, it just happens to be the beginning of our podcast journey. These were a couple of ones that I personally picked out um, because they were five stars. Yeah. For me. yeah. And that's why. And because I thought that they would make for good discussions. So I can uh, assure people that you are not Larry King, right? You're not like the pushover of movie criticism where it's just like every single movie's like this five stars, but I'm glad we picked this. I'm glad. Cause yeah, this is definitely a heavier episode, but we just got done talking about wild at heart, <laughs> you know? And if people knew what we have up our sleeve for the upcoming episodes, it would not even be it wouldn't even be a thing. But I think it also goes to show not only that it's an amazing movie and you have to deal with a movie of this magnitude. It would be a disservice to the movie not to talk about it um, yeah. and that it's inevitably going to bring up stuff like this, you know, stuff that's personal. And, and even the conversations you're hearing from this, that's probably the kind of conversations that you might have with your friends and loved ones if you watch this film. It's going to make you think about that kind of stuff because it is so real and it's so compelling, uh, the whole thing. And it's so brilliantly put together and done. But I I, am really glad. There's the last thing I'll say about it. I'm just really glad that you wanted to do this particular movie at the beginning. It wouldn't have been a good first one. Wild at Heart is a brilliant first move, right? Brilliant first impression for the show. Say, hey, 
This is this is what we do. It's what we talk about because you can mix it up with the the, the artistry and the esoteric stuff and the, you know everything else, the psychological dynamic and artistic right. quality of it all, even the music and everything, controversy, and that's great. And you're gonna you know that's in tons of movies, but this I think it helps to round out the way that the show is and that people who watch this what they can kind of expect. Not that they can expect this. We're promising, in fact then you're not going to have a lot of Paddletons because there's just not a lot of Paddletons. Yeah. There's just not. I'm just, I'm glad that we did this and I'm glad that I watched it. I'm glad that I cried and I'm glad that I got to talk to you about it. And so I'm really glad to have done this episode, this particular movie. Awesome, man. Well, here, here's where we usually have some kind of a comedic moral, but, I don't know. Under the circumstances of this film, I, I think we've—it's—it's uh, it's hard to poke fun at something we might have learned. Yeah, I don't think there's anything. <laughs> I don't think there's any hope for that, man. Some movies you just simply can't do it. It's kind of like Schindler's List. I mean, what are you going to do with that? You know, what yeah. kind of funny joke are you going to tell about Schindler's List? <laughs> right. So that being said, reach out to us. We got an email: Paleo Cheese with a Z at gmail.com that's p-a-l-e-o-c-h-e-e-z-e at gmail.com we've got all of the the appropriate social media stuff twitter instagram youtube channel uh facebook page yeah man Uh, just pay the old cheese start typing it in it'll come up yeah reach out to us and and even give suggestions and maybe get turned on to something new that we've never heard before Chad will start listening to rap. Oh, God. (laughs) Yeah, Yeah, we're going to have to watch like one of those one of those movies, man, about like, you know, rap battles. Yeah, uh, we're going to be inundated with emails about this or like the dance movies where they're they're having dance battles with each other. Yeah. Yeah. Electric Boogaloo. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. And so definitely make sure to email us. Make sure to like subscribe. Follow, comment, and share. Make sure to tell your family about it and all your friends, all that stuff. And we'll see you next time on another episode of Paleo Cheese. I love you, buddy. I love you too, man.